Thank you, Jerice. How's everybody doing today? It's good to see you all here in the house of God today. Like Jerice said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who might be visiting with us for the first time, or if you haven't been here in a while. It's good to see you again. Uh, a special welcome also to anybody who might be listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday morning. Well, if I'm moving a little slowly today, it's because I had a little too much fun yesterday at the church picnic. Uh, I left it all on the basketball court yesterday, and some of the guys around here have a new respect for me because of what they saw yesterday. And so it was really fun. We played basketball, baseball. It was really hot, but it was a really good time. I'm thankful for this community and the fun we had. I'm just a little sore uh, this morning. But uh, before I begin today, uh, it's, it's probably apparent to you as you get ready to take your kids back to school and just the fall is upon us. And the fall is a really special season in, in the life of a church, mainly because there's something about people getting their lives back to their normal rhythms of life uh, that puts us in a different sort of different zone uh, as a Christian church. And so I always look forward to the fall because we have it uh, seems like a steadier track to run on. People are a little more focused. Folks aren't traveling as much. And so as we engage the fall season, it's really a good opportunity for us to focus our entire church on our mission, on, on fresh vision. And so I'm looking forward to the next couple of weeks, not to mention small groups will start. Um, but I do want to just prepare your hearts for what's coming up in the next couple, of, uh, next couple of weeks as we enter the fall season. We'll be engaging in uh, 21 days of fasting and prayer. Uh, just to kick off this fall season, as everything in your life is getting aligned, your life with your family is in a unique rhythm, things are changing. I think that God has something really special for us to do in this community, which he'll really sort of breathe upon us in this fall season. And so whenever we enter a moment that's really important, it's helpful for us to try to peel back some of the noise and peel back some of the distractions and try to find those sacred rhythms again. And so when we uh, find ourselves in those seasons uh, as a church, it's helpful for us to go um, um, uh, as a community to a place of fasting and prayer. So we'll talk more about that. And just fasting is simply just turning down some of the noises in your life so that you can hear God more clearly. There are the things that we consume often that meet emotional needs for us. And when we fast and when we peel back from some of those things, we're able to hear God a little bit better. And so we'll unpack that in the coming weeks, but just prepare your hearts for that. Also, I know that many of you have kids that are returning to school, some of you this week, um, some of you next week. Uh, some of our people are going off to college. Uh, and so at the end of our service during ministry time, we just want to spend some time. We're going to keep the kids in here uh, after worship just so that we can bless them as they head back into school. So just prepare your hearts for that as well. Amen? I have a question for you. Have you ever, uh, has anybody in here ever been arrested? Has anybody ever been arrested? Now, I can tell who's been arrested because your eyes went down. You had a look of shame on your face. But anybody ever been arrested? Um, I have never been formally arrested, like put in cuffs and hauled away to jail. But I have been detained uh, by police before, and it wasn't a really uh, comfortable experience. Uh, it was during my freshman year at the University of Illinois down in Champaign-Urbana. Um, that year was a particularly rough year for me. It was the first time really being away from home. I wasn't particularly really homesick, but I was trying to find faith on my own. I was trying to navigate this really foreign cultural environment 
And so I really had a rough time, and I really, one of the things that I did to really provide some therapy for myself and to really clear my head and think was I would take walks late at night. And I would particularly walk to a place on campus uh, called the Cranard Center, so like Center for P- Performing Arts, mainly because uh, the Cranard Center had this outdoor amphitheater. Some of you who have gone to Champaign or you're from Urbana, you know that there's this beautiful outdoor amphitheater uh, next to the Cranard Center that is beautifully lit at night, you walk up these stairs, and it's really well lit. You can see a good chunk of the campus, and it was just an ideal place for me to go and think. And so one night, I'm on this late night walk. It's probably 11:30, midnight. And so as I'm going up the stairs, uh, as I normally do to, to Cranet Center to go and think and to process and to pray, I noticed that I was sort of being followed by two police officers. And so once I got up to the top of this place, I thought, this is interesting. And so a minute or so passed, and I noticed two squad cars pull up in front of this thing. And just a few moments later, I see some police officers walking on foot with, with canine units. And by this time, I'm really concerned, right? And so it doesn't take too long for these guys to come up to where I am. They begin to question me. I question them. Hey, what's going on? And they say, hey, we had a break-in in the area, and you fit the description. I said, fit the description. Okay. Um, and so this thing sort of plays out. They take me all the way down, and they stand me on the edge of the street. And a few minutes later, a, another squad car pulls up, and it stops about 10 or 15 feet away from me. And it's, they turn that big spotlight on, and they shine this light on me. And I'm standing there just really awkward. And I ask the officers next to me, say, hey, what is, what is going on right now? So apparently they had brought the person whose home had been broken into. They brought them to the scene to, uh, I guess, identify me. And so after a few moments of this, they turn the light off, the person drives away. They say, well, sir, um, it wasn't you. You're, you're free to go. Can we take you back to your dorm? And I'm like, sure. And so they pat me down and put me in the back of this squat car, and they take me home. Now, this is a really, really confusing experience, for me, mainly because I had never experienced it before. But there was one thing that wasn't confusing about that situation, and that was that I knew for a fact that I was not free to go. I knew for a fact that I was being detained. I knew for a fact that they had the power, the authority that was invested in them by the local sort of government to question me, to detain me. I was not free to go. And that was just about the only thing I was clear about in that exchange. And as I spent life uh, as a Christian following Jesus, uh, going through the seasons of the soul, seasons of my life with him, having high points and ups with him, and ha- certainly having downs, having long periods of faithfulness and righteousness, but also having those periods of righteousness and faithfulness punctuated with periods of rebellion and sinfulness, I found that God also has a way of detaining us. God also has a way of arresting us. And if a police officer has the power and authority to detain you, to keep you from going, to to get your undivided attention, I found that God has a way of getting our undivided attention. God has a way of arresting us or detaining us when and if he wants to talk to us. When and if he needs to get our attention, I found that God has no problem orchestrating the circumstances of life so that you pause and notice him. So that you pause and notice the status of your situation. So that you pause and give him your undivided attention. God has a way of arresting those that he wants to talk to. 
And so I've used that to continue a series that I started a couple weeks ago, a series that I'm simply calling When God Shows Up. We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about when God shows up, what happens when God shows up. And we've been saying as a point of clarification that God is an ever-present God. It's not like he has to sort of dart around to get his bidding done. God is ever-present. The Spirit is always with us, especially those of us who have surrendered our life to Jesus, surrendered our life in faith. The measure of God's Spirit always goes with us. So when we say when God shows up, we're simply talking about those moments in our life where we need a boost of God's presence. The circumstances and those situations in our life where we need the more of the Lord. We need him to speak louder than our situation. We need him to speak louder than the issue or the problem that we're having. We need an increase of his presence. And that's what I mean when I say when God shows up. When God turns up the volume of his presence in our life for a particular time at a particular moment. We've talked about we experience these uh, punctuated moments when we're in the valleys of life, when it's hard to perceive God, when it's hard because of the circumstances of life are pressing in on us. We also need God to show up at the mountaintops of our life when things are going well and we don't particularly care about God or we're doing too well to be able to perceive him and every other place in between. I've said that what you need most in your life is not more money. You don't need another boss. You don't need the circumstances of your life to align. That would be nice. What you need more than anything is for God to show up in your life. For the past couple of weeks, we explored the fact that when God shows up, we encounter a God that meets our needs, a God that gives us what we need. And last week, we continued by stating that when God shows up, we encounter a God who reveals himself. And you get the best of who God is when he reveals himself, and God gets the best of who you are when God reveals himself. This week we'll continue uh, by discussing that when God shows up, we encounter an arresting God, an arresting God, a God that has his way of getting our attention, a God that can stop things and shut things down so that we can focus on him so that we can live according to his divine purposes. We'll be looking this morning at a passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 1, an arresting God. I know that doesn't sound great and fun, very appetizing to the ears, but trust me, I think you'll get the point as we work through this. Acts chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 1. Before I do that, let me pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your power. I thank you so much for your presence. I thank you so much, Lord, that you draw near to us because you have something for us to do. Lord, I'm thankful that when we just want to be left alone, we want to do our own thing, we want to have our own fun, we don't want to be bothered with you, Lord. Your goodness and your mercy draws near even still. And so, Father, we realize today that it's a good thing that you stop us. It's a great thing that you encounter us and you engage us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this aspect of you and your presence. Father, I pray that you would put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Would you let your truth and your light shine through? We ask all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Looking at Acts chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 1. And let me just set this up for us this morning. Uh, The book of Acts, as some of you know, follows the four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the New Testament of the Bible. The first four books of the the New Testament basically uh, tell stories of Jesus' life in ministry. It tells the story of Jesus' life on earth. And so when Jesus was uh, persecuted, crucified, buried, and he rose again, 
uh, the apostles, those who were following Jesus, his disciples as they were, um, took to the world and spread this gospel of Jesus Christ. They begin to tell people about Jesus Christ. And so what, when we turn from the gospels to the book of Acts, we see the acts of the apostles or the work of the early church, how the church got started. How, I mean, if we trace what we're doing right here today all the way back, it traces back to what happened uh, uh, in the book of Acts, where the apostles went throughout the world spreading the gospel, doing miracles and signs and wonders, planting churches and all the sorts of things. And so this is what we see in the books, book of Acts. And so as we journey through the book of Acts, we meet a guy named Saul. And Saul sounds a lot like Paul because Paul is Saul's new name. But Saul is uh, the guy who um, basically was persecuting Christians. He didn't believe uh, that Jesus was who he said he was. He thought that the church was a bunch of charlatans trying to get over on people. And so he had this zeal for stamping out Christians. And so in this passage that we're going to read today, we're going to look at Saul's conversion. We're going to look at this encounter that Saul had with God that basically turned the tides on this man's life. And many of you know that Saul, his name was changed to Paul, and Paul became one of the greatest teachers of the Gospels, one of the greatest apostles, even though he wasn't one of the original 12. Saul has this amazing experience with God. God arrests him, shows up in his life in a powerful way. Let's read the story. We'll start at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way or Christians that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down on him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you, you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. Verse 9, he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him, so that he could see again. But Lord exclaimed, uh, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards he ate some food and regained his strength. Again, a fascinating encounter. Another fascinating encounter as we've been looking at a series of encounters Fascinating encounter that Saul has with God on this 
Damascus Road. It's especially remarkable because we get a picture of who Saul used to be, a persecutor of Christians, somebody who didn't think very much of Christians. And we fast forward and we look at who Saul became, one of the greatest preachers of the gospel, one of the greatest church planters, one of the greatest missionaries. In fact, we owe a lot of uh, the, 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 the movement and the vigor of the Christian movement to the Apostle Paul and his faithful work that he did for Christ. So in this particular snapshot of his life, we see the turning point that happened in his life. And the biggest turning point that he has is uh, you know, this Damascus Road with this encounter with Jesus. So he had a problem with Christ and Christians. He thought that they were, basically he thought they were fake. He thought they were lying. He thought they were being deceptive. And he had a lot of passion and zeal to stamp this thing out. And so Saul seeks to get letters from the priest, basically giving him permission to round up and abuse and arrest all of these Christians. And so as he's on the way to take care of this, on the road to Damascus, he has this powerful encounter with God. There's this powerful encounter with God. And I told you last week, that when God is present in a situation, it doesn't matter who is giving you permission. Who's going to write you a letter to get God off of you, right? Who's going to give you a permission slip for God to, like, say, okay, you have a letter from that guy. I'll leave you alone. doesn't matter who gave him a letter. God wanted his attention, and he has this powerful encounter with him on this Damascus road. God wanted an audience with this young man, and he knew exactly how to get it. And so much like the following weeks, what I'm asking you to do is to try to see yourself in this story. Try to see yourself in this encounter and ask yourself, what might God be doing in your life? What might be keeping you stuck? What might be uh, stealing your attention and your affection? And what might God be trying to address in your life? And so I want to highlight four things that happen as we encounter an arresting God, as Saul did on this Damascus road. The first thing I see when we encounter an arresting God, when God shows up, is that God stops you in your tracks. He stops you in your tracks. Saul, as you probably know by now, was traveling wrong. And so we serve a merciful God, and when we're traveling wrong, God could easily just sort of wipe us out. He can easily throw us down. He can easily cast his judgment. He can easily take our life. But instead, we serve a pursuing God. We serve a merciful God. And one of the ways God exhibits his mercy is he stops us when we're traveling wrong. Doesn't matter if you know the Lord or if you don't know the Lord, God can still stop you in your tracks if He wants to get your attention. Don't matter if you're involved in big sins or small sins or things you consider insignificant, whether you're having an affair or whether you're getting into a pattern of gossip, God can stop you in your tracks when He wants to get your attention. And perhaps you're not caught up in any big sins, perhaps you're not, you know, missing the mark in some major way, perhaps you're just doing nothing. Perhaps you're just coasting. Perhaps you're just taking it easy, right? Just sitting on the sidelines, coasting, letting everybody else do the heavy lifting, not leaning into God's purpose and plan for your life. And even in those moments, God has a way of stopping you in your tracks, getting your attention. This is what happened with Saul. As Saul was approaching the Damascus road, the Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul's out, about to do his business, about to take care of these tasks that he has, and he's stricken by the Lord, knocked off of his horse. And the scripture says that a light shone and it knocked him off of his horse. 
And so I imagine the Lord encountering Saul at this point. He says, Saul, what are you doing, man? What's going on, man? What's happening? What are you, what are you doing? And so I think one of the most striking things about Saul is that Saul wasn't this devious guy doing with this devious work. Like Saul like really thought that he was working for God. Saul's a religious man. He's a man of faith. He's devoted to God and devoted to the religious law, and he thought that he was doing God a favor by stamping out this roughneck group of Christians that was making these false claims and confusing the pious Jewish people that lived here in Jerusalem. Saul was operating with a clear conscience. He was moving forward in work that he thought that he was doing for the Lord. And so I think that's particularly important because some of you here today, you're traveling wrong, you're on the wrong road, but you're doing so with a clear conscience. You're doing so thinking that you're all right with God. Maybe you heard a bad strand of this message. Maybe you haven't fully understood what God wants from you. Maybe you haven't fully understand the boundaries where God says stop and go no further. Either way, when you're traveling wrong and God has something for, to, for you to do, in his mercy, he has a way of stopping you in your tracks. Now, on the other side of that coin, there are many of us who are traveling wrong, and we know it. We just don't happen to care. And what we're into, what we're wrapped up into feels good to us. It's meeting some emotional need. It's meeting some physical need. We have some indifference about God's plan. Perhaps we're disappointed with God. We're upset with God and attempt to show him that I'm going to do things my way. You live and engage in a life of rebellion. It doesn't really matter. The point is Saul was traveling wrong. The point he was heading in the wrong direction, and God, out of his mercy, sought to stop him in his tracks. Now, I think verse 3 is really important here because verse 3 says, A light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. And if you remember last week, one of the final points that we made last week is that Isaiah was being called to turn the lights on for those who were walking in darkness. Now, you're going to hear this phrase around here a whole lot because I feel like the Lord spoke to me this week. He says that everything that we're supposed to be doing in this church surrounds this whole point here, that we're supposed to be turning the light on for this community, turning the lights on for those who walk in darkness, turning the lights on for those who come and participate here on Sunday morning. Turn on the lights on for those who engage us through small groups. Turn on the light on for those who engage us uh, in our outreaches and things like that. This is what God has called us to do. So everything that we program around here, every dime we spent, we have to put it up against this objective, right? But before we can turn the light on for anybody else, guess what has to happen first? God's got to turn the light on for us. God's got to turn the light on for us. We got to see him for who he really is. We got to encounter the real Jesus who has a real plan for our life. And so this was the issue with Paul. He's traveling wrong. He was on a mission of his own. He was doing his own work with a clear conscience. God had something else for him to do. And so God, through his faithfulness, turns on the light for Saul, or at least initiates this process by knocking him off this horse and engaging him in this powerful way. God had a plan for this young man, and so he stops him in his tracks. And some of you are here today because you were traveling on your own road to Damascus, doing your own thing, and something happened in your life where God stopped you in your tracks. Living a life on your own, doing your own thing, and God, through his faithfulness and mercy, stopped you in 
your tracks. And so God doesn't stop there. This arresting God that we serve continued by identifying himself. That's the second thing that, that, that God does as he encounters and arrests arrest this guy. He, turn, he um, identifies himself. Verse 4 says, He fell to the ground, Saul that is, and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5 says, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, many of you have had interactions with law enforcement. We have some law enforcement people in here. And one of the things that law enforcement officials make a point to do, at least they should, is they identify themselves when they're engaging with you. When they've stopped you, when they are trying to get your attention, when they're trying to engage you, when they're trying to question you, one of the main things, one of the primary things that they're supposed to do, they're supposed to identify themselves. And in identifying themselves, they're letting you know that I have the authority, I have the footing here, I have the backing of the legal system in order to engage in these activities, and you want to pay attention, right? And so it's not uh, enough for God to stop us in our tracks. It's completely meaningless if this God of all the universe who has a plan for our life doesn't identify himself and let us know who we're dealing with, especially in Saul's case because he particularly didn't believe that Jesus was the real deal. He thought, certainly we killed that guy a little while ago. We're done with him. Let me just sort of deal with this rest of the riffraff so we can put this thing to bed. And so this exchange is really powerful because God identifies who's trying to get his attention. He says, who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He says, I am Jesus, the Word made flesh. I'm Jesus, the incarnate deity. I'm Jesus, the Son of God. I am Emmanuel, God with us. I'm a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's that's who you're dealing with, the one you don't believe in, the one you don't respect, the one you're persecuting, the one you're trying to stamp out. That's who I am. That's who I am. And this is so powerful because... In this moment, this very real arresting encounter that Saul has with Jesus on this road, it totally, it totally breaks down uh, Saul's main goal in pursuing these Christians and arresting them. He didn't believe. He didn't believe. This was a farce. This was a fairy tale. And so as he's encountering the real Jesus, Jesus is made real to him, and it completely changes the game. And so this is why we've been talking the last several weeks about it's so important that we actually experience God and not just read about him, that we actually feel his presence and hear his voice and not just come and listen to the preacher preach about him and not just read the powerful word to scripture, that we actually encounter the living Jesus in a way that is real to us, that makes sense to us, that we can perceive and that we can feel. Because before we experience him, before we encounter him, before we can hear his voice speak to us, it just kind of all seems kind of pie in the sky-ish, right? It can all seem a little fairy tale-ish. It can all all seem, as many skeptics accuse us, this is just a crutch for the weak. This is just something to make you feel good. This is just something to make you sort of buy your time here on earth and make you feel good about all the things that are wrong with the world. But until you experience God, None of this really matters. Until God arrests you and speaks to you, 
And whether he's comforting you with his presence or whether he's rebuking you uh, with his strong hand of correction, none of this really makes sense. None of this seems real. And I don't know about you, but I was the kid that needed, like, some tough love. I had sisters who all they needed to know was that my parents were upset with them, and they would just sort of self-correct after they cried it out. Me, I, I needed some hands laid on me. I needed to experience my pr- parents in that way in order to know that what they were saying, they meant business, that the consequences were real, and that this whole, whatever they were trying to instruct me was, was actually legit. I, I, needed to, I needed to experience something. And my guess is that in a room this size, that many of you are uh, of the caliber that you, you really need, like, God to show up in your life in a really pressing way. In order for God to really get your attention, you really need to experience him and, and like, know that it's him speaking to you and know that it's him and to have him reveal himself to you in a powerful way. But Jesus stops him in his tracks. He identifies himself And thirdly, he allows Saul to feel the pinch of correction. And this is what happens in our life. God allows you to feel the pinch of correction. Oftentimes, it doesn't just stop with Jesus saying, hey, you're traveling wrong. Hey, it's me. It's Jesus. I'm real. I'm legit. I want to, I have a plan for your life. Slow down. Uh, Come and follow me. Some of us, we need to feel the pinch of correction. We need God to get after our behinds. We need to feel the pinch of, of the consequences that come to bear in our actions uh, when, we, when we rebel against God. We need to feel the pinch of the consequence, the pinch of want. Many of us need to feel the pinch of, of limited mobility. Most of us, before we have to really come to the Lord, before we really come in, before we really acknowledge him, we have to feel some type of pinch. And this is what this arresting God allowed Saul to feel. Verse 8 said, Saul picked himself off, up, off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. And I think this is super significant because God had to put this guy in timeout. He had to put this guy in timeout. Paul, the way he was wired, was a go-getter, was a mover and a shaker. He had his plans. He had his letters. He's about to do this thing. And so when God really wants to get this guy's attention, he had to make him feel the pinch of correction to slow him down. Now, depending on who you are, this pinch of direct, uh, correction looks a little bit different. Depending on who, who you are and how you're wired and how you respond and your temperament. But for this guy, Saul... Um, the, the, the method of choice was blindness. See, blindness makes you dependent. You can't move as fast when you're blind. You need some help from others when you're blind. You got to get somewhere and sit down, right, when you're blind. And so God strikes him with blindness, puts him in time out, gives this brother some time to think about the fact that he's traveling wrong. And so this is particularly significant because, listen, imagine a band of uh, powerful Christians coming along trying to pray for Saul. There's no healing prayer. They, they can pray. They could get this blindness off of them. 
They can have an intercessory prayer, healing. They can rub his eyes with oil all they wanted. There's nothing that get this off him because God put this on him. And so I'm learning as a preacher who so, so, so often wants to go and rescue people and sort of pad their nest, so to speak, to keep them from feeling the pinch of this correction. God has just taught me over the years, no, no, they need to sit in that for a little bit. You've messed up your marriage. You need, you need to sit in that for a little bit. I don't need to come and make that right. I don't need to preach you happy or play some songs that make you feel good because what God wants to do in your life is make you feel the pinch of that so that you, so he can get your attention. And some of us are stewarding our money foolishly. In the early days, we just go try to scoop people up and just help them and pay the bill and do all this stuff. And what I realized is, is that some of the, sometimes God has you in these situations. Sometimes God has stricken you with something to get your attention because he knows you. He created you. And he knows that the only thing that will get your attention is if you have to sit in that for a little bit. If you have to have some of your options limited, if you have to deal with the consequences that have come to bear as a result of your running from him, whether you meant to do it or not, the pinch of correction. And some of you, the only reason you're flying straight today is because God let you experience a season where you felt pinched. A season where you felt pinched, where you didn't have as much money to do what you wanted to do. You would have sinned, you would have gotten in trouble, but you just... You know, the circumstances of your life didn't allow it. Pinch of want. The pinch of pain is a consequence of your actions. The pinch of the, 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 the decisions that you've made coming back to visit with you. Some of you are here today, and you're in the thick of that pinch of correction. Now, let me just say that I don't think that that's exclusively true. And some people would lead you to believe that if you're having some dysfunction in your life, if there's some pain in your life, if you're sick, or if you're in need, or if you're in want, like that's God judging you. That's like their go-to suggestion for when somebody's dealing with pain and sickness. I'm not saying that today. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that this could be the case. If you're living your life counter to the way that God wants you to live it, It could be the case that God might choose to afflict you for a season so that he might get your attention, so that he might be able to talk to you, so that you could slow down enough for him to say, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? So you can imagine our friend Saul here being blind for three days, relatively immobile without somebody's help. He hadn't like many people who've been blind for years, grown accustomed to, you know, having his other senses heightened so that he can get around and move about. This is like a real affliction for him, such that he has, he has uh, three whole days to think and to pray and to reckon with him being stopped in his tracks and encountering the revealed Christ. He's got three whole days. And I imagine each one of these days feels like about a month each as he's sitting there in the darkness, probably in the quiet, probably rehearsing over and over in his mind the things that the Lord had spoke to him on that Damascus road. Now, Jesus didn't say a whole lot to him, but what he said to him was a mouthful. What he said to him is, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And by the way, me, the person that's talking to you, I'm the Jesus that you don't particularly believe in. 
Now, imagine having three days to run that through the processes. Imagine having three days to work that through and to work that through. And so my guess is that Saul here has some things to think about. And so let me talk to those of you for a moment who are in this season where you're feeling the pinch of correction, particularly the pinch that comes from God as a result of your traveling wrong, as a result of your rebellion, as a result of your indifference. What are you doing in this time? <laughs> like, what are you doing in this season where God has you sequestered, where God has limited your options and he's limited your mobility and maybe you're afflicted? Like, what are you doing in this moment? How are you processing? How are you using this time? Because more than likely, it's from God. Saul gets a chance as he's arrested to feel the pinch of correction. The fourth and final thing that I see when we encounter an arresting God as he shows up is that he invites others into the process. God often invites others into the process. Now, this is something that I hadn't particularly considered before, but I think it's so important, mainly because much of what we do here uh, in a a Christian community is live in community, right? We do life with other people. And God's preferred method, usually, for engaging us, speaking truth to us, oftentimes speaking correction to us, and getting us on the road that he wants for us to be on, oftentimes God uses other people to help get that work done. God uses the community of believers in order to engage us. Now Saul was, at this point in his life, on the outside of the community of believers. Uh, And so God uses this community of faith to go out and turn the light on for other people, right? But God also uses this community for those, especially for those who are already in this community. God leads us, God disciples us, and oftentimes even disciplines us, and he encourages us by committee often, right? Through the people that we do life with within the context of Christian community. And we see here in verse 10 that God enlists the help of another believer to help Saul along in this process. Now keep in mind, Saul has been sequestered for three days, blind. He's got nothing but time to think and deal with God who's arrested him. Verse 10, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, the Lord replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man named, from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. And so Ananias clearly has no problem with this. He's going to go eagerly, right? Wrong. Verse 13, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many People talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Now, this is shifting focus here at this point, right? Because we shift our attention from Saul to brother Ananias. Ananias gets a call from the Lord to go and help this person who is in need of his help. Particularly, Saul needs to, you know, have this process finalized, this process of conversion, this process of enlightenment. And God pulls Ananias' numbers to Ananias, go and deal with this guy, Saul. And Ananias is sort of rolling through his mind real quick, like, Saul of Tarsus? Now, Lord, surely you know everything, right? If I've heard about this guy, certainly you've heard about this guy. 
And so just Ananias takes a few moments to just make sure that this assignment is legit. He says, uh, this is a bad dude. And not only is he a bad dude, he's got like papers. He's got permission. We've heard the things that he was doing, right? And so I think it's really cool that uh, in this story of Saul's conversion, like we see this shift like halfway through here where God like starts to focus on those of us who would help those who God is trying to arrest. Like those of us who have the lights turned on for us, for those of us who can see God clearly, who are reasonably sort of walking with the Lord, like God would like use us even at great risk to us, even when it's uncomfortable, even like when it might cost us something like God is enlisting our help to bring more people into the fold and, you know, enlisting our help to go turn the lights on for somebody else. Like this is what's happening with Ananias. And Ananias, like many of us, he's, he's got a problem with this. He doesn't immediately say, cool, what's the address? Where, where do I need to go? He said, hey, let's talk about this for a little bit. And so I think this is so central, and I'm, 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 like, I'm preaching, but I'm putting my pastor hat on right now because I'm, I'm casting vision for this church. I think this is so important, like, and this is like one of the things that God is calling us to do that we aren't doing a real good job at as of yet. And if we're not doing a good job of something as a church, like, I, that means the buck stops with me. So mostly this is like a leadership issue. But the Lord just said to me this week, like, how well are we turning on the lights for the people who are walking in darkness? I said, Lord, I preach, I preach the word like we preach an uncompromising message. When people come into, you know, our church, like we love them, but we help them be transformed by the truth of the gospel. Good. And so as I begin to rehearse what we do, it seems like for the most part, you know, people have to come to us in order to have the lights turned on. Like they got to come on our turf. They got to, you know, they got to, they got to get to us and we do our best work like once they're in here. And so I was convicted when I look at this passage and like, like, like the Lord is like not really concerned that much with, you know, the fact that Ananias is concerned. He's not really concerned with the risks that he perceives that he's taking. He doesn't shy away or sort of couch this thing. He says, listen, there's somebody groping in the dark, like literally and spiritually, and you're the guy that needs to go and turn the light on for him. Like, like get up and do it. I'm struck by the language he uses as he presents this to Ananias. He was like, hey, Ananias, are you busy right now? Um, are you doing something? Like, would you like to do this? He was like, no, go and take care of this. Go and take care of this. Now, this is especially important because we know how it turns out. Saul's a scoundrel. He was a wretched guy. He was a dangerous guy. He thought nothing of arresting and throwing Christians into prison, possibly even killing them. He thought nothing of it. But what did God know that Ananias didn't know? He knew what Saul would become. He knew that, you know, Paul would write the biggest chunk of the New Testament, that Paul would go all over the world preaching the gospel to Gentiles and unlock, turning the lights on for them. He knew that Paul would be unashamed. He would stand toe-to-toe to in, with anybody if they stood in the way of the gospel getting out. Like, this is what God knew. So he didn't really care what Ananias thought. He wanted him to be obedient. 
He, he wanted to be missional. He wanted to be about the business of spreading the gospel and doing what? Turning on the lights for those who are groping in darkness. And I, my, my hope is that this grips your heart this morning. As you ask yourself, like I had to ask myself this week, who are we turning the lights on for? I mean, outside of this building, like outside of this like safe place where people, outside of our church, like who are we, who are we turning the lights on for? If God came to you and gave you a message like he gave to Ananias, a confusing one, one sort of wrapped in risk, like, like would you do it? Would you go? Would you speak up at work if it meant you being that guy now? Like if it would cost you a promotion or if it would cost you some status in your neighborhood? Like would, would, would you go to your neighbor if God said, listen, that neighbor that like growls at you and like sicks their dog on you almost, like when you come home, like if the Lord wanted to use you to like turn the light on for them, like would you go? Would you, would you do it? Those of you who are school age and you know, or in college, it's like, you know, it's tremendous social pressure to be cool and to fit in. Um, could, could the Lord use you in those spaces? College students, high school students, could the Lord use you in those spaces to turn the line on for somebody else, to take some risk? The Lord said you haven't seen much because you haven't, you haven't risked much. I'm talking to me. I'm talking to me in the context of our church. Listen, listen I know we have the goods here. But I feel like God is calling us to be the others in this story, to be Ananias. And to be Ananias without knowing how it's going to turn out. Without knowing how it's going to turn out. Because the person you turn the light on for just might be a person that ends up following Jesus. They might not do exploits. They might not go to the nations, right? They might just not go to hell. They might just experience life with Jesus. On the other hand, you might be ministering to somebody who God has great, you know, great plans for. It doesn't matter. We're just called to be witnesses. We're called to stand near the light switch and just turn it on when he says, turn it on. So Ananias protests, and in verse 15 he continues. God says, but go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how, he mu- how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So God is inviting others. He's inviting us into the, this process. Yes, God uses us in this process of arresting and detaining and getting people's attention. Like God's really good at getting people's attention, really good at, at having a captive audience. I've seen this over the years. He applies the pinch of correction, and there's something about that pinch that all of a sudden you're, 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 you're eager to hear what God has to say. You're open in a way that you haven't been open before. And so along come us. Along come us with the light, with a word, with friendship, with encouragement, with Christian community, with small group, with the Sunday service. Along come us to finish this thing off. And so Ananias comes along, and the Lord just provides three quick things that I just want to run through real quick. When we get involved in this process, like, like we, we, we help provide some of that direction. 
like direction, right? As I've said for the last couple of weeks, when God shows up, one of the distinguishing marks of him showing up is that you get some, you get, he unlocks purpose. He tells you what he, he wants you to do next. And so part of what God reveals to Ananias is like, go, Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. This is like direction. This is like Saul's next steps. This is like what he's going to do. And Ananias gets invited into this process to unlock that. Like God is showing up in Saul's life and like Ananias is like, gets to be a part of that. But that's not the only thing. It's direction, but he also gets healing. We have to understand that there's a physical affliction here. Like he, he literally can't see. It's not that his eyes are blurry or he's having trouble. He's blind. He's afflicted. And this affliction came from God. But the healing, I mean, God could have just said, okay, you're done being blind. So all, like you get up and walk. But instead, he uses Ananias. He says, go lay your hands on him. So verse 17, so Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Who did God use to do that? He's us. He used others. He used Ananias to bring healing to this situation. Friends, God can change anything that he wants to change in a person's life. He can just, he can just speak it. He can just wave his hand. But he often lets us be a part of that. Often lets us be an agent in this transformation, in this conversion. He, he invites us into this process, the process of healing. But the most important thing that we get to be a part of, Ananias was a part of, is the salvation. Like salvation came to Saul. Salvation came to him. He not only regained his sight, but the scriptures tell us in verse 18 that he got up and was baptized. And after he was baptized, he got up and ate and regained his strength. He was baptized. And I told you a couple weeks ago when we had baptism service here that like this baptism is a big deal. Like he's now identifying through baptism with the death, suffering, and the resurrection of the Jesus that he didn't believe in three days ago. And so you see the culmination of this conversion experience. God, like, stops him from traveling wrong. He, he, he identifies who he is, Jesus, that is. He allows him to feel this affliction, this pinch of correction. And now, through Ananias, he's not only healed and told of his purpose, he's baptized. He's one with Christ now. He's, he's a brother now. But God used Ananias. God used Ananias to do it. God used Ananias to turn the light on in his life. God used Ananias to do a really significant part of what he wanted to do in Saul's life. You can tell by now that there's sort of two sides to this. Like there's the person that God, God is arresting, the person that God wants to get their attention, and, and then there's us, the people that God wants to use to help in that process. And so sitting in this room, get this, sitting in this room are both types of people. You could be sitting next to a person who is on the other side of this coin. And so in this message here today, there is something for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter whether you know the Lord or not. Doesn't matter whether you're engaged in something big and scandalous or something that's small and growing in your life. Either way, God's arresting 
presence wants you to deal with what he's putting his finger on today. God wants to show up and reveal himself to you in a way that is real, that is transformational, and that moves you to a place where you understand your purpose and your destiny, moves you to a place of healing and wholeness, moves you to a place of salvation and oneness with Christ. Where are you today? Worship team, you can come up as I put this all together. How do we put this all together? We serve an arresting God. And that's not a bad thing, no matter how bad that that feels sometimes in the moment. That's not a bad thing because I'm going to say this and make sure you get this. The worst thing that God could do is leave you alone. And some of you, that's been your prayer. Your fits of anger, your fits of frustration, you're annoyed with God because he's like, trying to get your attention, you would just say, God, maybe you didn't say this out loud. Maybe you don't have the courage to. But you say, God, just leave me alone. The worst thing that God could do to you is leave you alone. We were going, going through Romans a couple of years ago, and one of the things that I saw when God really wanted to judge somebody, <laughs> the Scripture says, and he, and he gave them over. He, he gave them over to the thing that they were involved in. Like, he, he gave them over to the thing that, that, that they were wrapped up in. And he just let them, let that thing just consume them. Lifted his hand off of their life. Lifted the voice of reason and conscience off of their, off of their life. And said, like, I just give you over to it and just let the thing consume you. That's the a, that's a worst thing that a parent can do for a child to just let the child go and do whatever they want. The worst thing that God could do for you is, is to just leave you alone. On, on the other hand, the most merciful thing that God can do for you if you're traveling wrong, if you're in some mess, if you're living a life of rebellion or living a life of indifference or even sincerely in good conscience traveling wrong, the best thing that God can do for you is to arrest you and get your attention to arrest you and reveal himself to you, to arrest you, and if he has to, allow you to feel the pinch of correction so that you know that he means business. One of the best things that God can do for you is to enlist the help of others to help you understand what God has made you to be, bring healing and hope and restoration to your life, and to bring you into the family of Jesus Christ as one who has been sort of turned out to go and turn the light on for others. That's the best thing that God can do for you. And so if you're in a season of arrest right now, if you're a season where you feel the pinch, as hard as it might be, would you just take a moment to say, Lord, thank you for the pinch. Thank you for stopping me in my tracks. Thank you, Lord, for this season. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. Like, I'm annoyed by this, Lord, but I know you do this because you love me. You've got a plan for me, and you want me to walk that out. Thank you, Father, for showing up in this way. Where are you? My prayer is that the Lord will continue to reveal that as we worship. Lord, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much for the fact that you don't leave us alone. You don't let us go. You don't turn us over. Instead, you, you keep pursuing us. You keep arresting us. You keep working, Lord, to get our attention so that we might trust you, so that we might follow you, so that we might use our life to do what you called us to do. 
Father, we also thank you, Lord, that you enlist our help. You use us, Father, to turn the lights on for somebody else. And so, Lord, for the places and for the people where we've been indifferent about that, where we've been unwilling to take risks, where we've been unwilling to put ourselves out, Father, we just collectively repent. Lord, we would, I just stand before you as your, the steward of this house, Lord, and just repent, Father, for our indifference, for our laziness, for our complacency. Father, use us to turn the lights on. Use us and our families. Use us, Lord, in our workplaces. Use us in the places where we go to school and where we go and play and in the marketplace. God, use us. Give us eyes to see those who are, are just ready to receive his eyes to see, Lord, those who are just, just like Saul, just waiting, afflicted, with time on their hands, hearts soft. Lord, just show us who's ready. Lord, we repent today. And we make a new commitment, Lord, as a church and as individuals, Lord, to, to be your agents in this world. To turn the lights on for those who are groping in darkness. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.